I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast. In association with Line Trust. Specialist Fund Managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. It's been an extremely chilly week since I last spoke to you, so let's huddle together for warmth around the digital listening device and reflect on the handful of football matches which actually went ahead this weekend. On today's episode, Arsenal Ennui reaches dangerously high levels on the South Coast, Jurgen Klopp's goal-tastic Liverpool ruin Rafa's return, and your Premier League champions Manchester City continue their now slightly half-hearted march towards the title. We'll head to the heart of the world of football governance with our man Ben Rumsby, who fills us in on the approval of VAR for the World Cup by IFAB. Not an app designed to remind you how fabulous you are, but a gathering of important football people in Switzerland. Plus, what's it actually like to play professional football on a snowy pitch when the temperature is well below freezing? We will find out. But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by emerging Telegraph sport talent. It's the boy wonder, Sam Dean. Sam, how are you? I'm very well, Tom. Thanks for having me back. A pleasure, Sam. We will start at Arsenal. A defeat to Brighton, all too predictable on Sunday. Is this a new depressing low they've reached now? Uh, it does feel like a new a new low. I mean, there have been lows, obviously, in the last few seasons, but there's always been a glimmer of hope at the end of it, uh, namely the FA Cup, which they obviously won three times in four years. This time feels different, particularly after the money they spent in January with Aubameyang coming in and doing pretty much nothing ever since, Mkhitaryan coming in and doing pretty much nothing ever since, and the whole Sanchez fiasco, and everything just feels like with each passing year it gets worse and worse. This time last year the calls were really coming finger to go, saying time's up, come on, come on, let's get out of here. Now it's stronger than ever, and I think the performances in the last week, obviously the City defeats, the two separate City defeats, have the caveat of being against Man City. But the performances in those were not good enough. Um, the reaction to falling 3-0 down uh, on Thursday in the Premier League, I was there at the Emirates on a very, very cold Thursday night. It, it was just pathetic, really. And I know that's the word Gary Neville uses, and I'm, I'm loath to repeat Gary. Obviously, he, uh, he sort of co-opted the word pathetic for his own. But he, um, I think he nailed it on the head on the Sunday of the League Cup final. And then... On the Thursday, they tried really hard and they pressed and they refused to say, look, they refused to be seen as not trying, but there's just a lack of quality. Um, I mean, for example, and that, I don't want to go too deep into into Thursday, but 
at one point in the first five minutes, Aaron Ramsey burst forward through the City defence to try to get across in and then immediately City counter-attack through the space he left behind and he was picked as holding midfielder and it was just sort of manic, sort of panicked, fevered uh, determination, desperation and that sort of struck me as a lack of leadership, a lack of tactical nous, which we know Wenger's struggled with the last few years anyway. It looks like he's been left behind and no, no more. So then Sunday we're on, uh, on the South Coast when for the 40 minutes, I mean, that was probably one of the worst halves Arsenal produced under Wenger in 21 years give or take the, uh, the Bayern Munich 5-1s, the two separate Bayern Munich 5-1s. But as it goes, that was pretty dreadful. It could have been 4-0 down before half-time. It was an alarmingly poor performance for that uh, for, the, for the majority of that first half. The thing that strikes me is that there's a regression in the players, but also in the players that he signed quite recently. I, I know Albemiong scored today, but he was completely peripheral for most of the game. Kolasinac started so promisingly. He's now all over the shop, nowhere for... Uh, the first goal in particular. Uh, what's causing that, do you think? It's like they've been infected. Yeah, no, it's really hard to put your finger on it. But if you look at the best managers in football the last few years, people like Conte, Pep, Diego Simeone in particular, Pochettino in England, these guys have all taken players who don't look that good, really. They look like average to good players and made them brilliant. The likes of, top of my head, Victor Moses last year's best right back in the Premier League. Who would have thought that would happen? You've got Pep Guardiola turning Fabian Delph into a competent footballer. You've got people like Ben Davies who've, at Spurs who Pochettino's turned into this really consistent, ultra-reliable left-back. Whereas at Arsenal, is the complete opposite. Which of their players do you think have improved under Wenger that, is that they've signed? I mean, to a man, they've almost all become worse. Chaka came in for £35 million. He's a £35 million player and he looks... And he's never looked at home at all. Mustafi was also a £35 million player. He's won the World Cup, Mustafi. And he looks completely out of depth in the Premier League, which is just against a side like Brighton as well. I mean, it's not the most complex attacking pattern when Glenn Murray's charging at you, but he couldn't cope with it. And it's been the case for, for weeks. I mean, these players are, are to a man regressing. And as you say, Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, they already seem to be infected by sort of Arsenalitis or this this spreading malaise around the club. Um, and it was amazing to see reports in the week of a senior player, an, an unnamed senior player, but I'm sure it was a very well-sourced report in The Guardian about a senior player in tears in the dressing room saying, we're not getting enough support from the coaches, we're not having the help we need. And that just says it all, really. You've got top-class players who are falling way below their best and desperately trying to fix it, but they're not getting the help they need and it's quite clearly that things are rotten in Arsenal right now Czech's a worry as well isn't he uh, he, he was uh, nowhere at all for the first header from a corner uh, let that Murray header go under him quite pathetically for the second goal and he, and he took the rap to him in fairness afterwards he said if you want to win a game away off home in the best league in the world your GK can't concede two goals like I did today it's simply not possible the team fought back but the damage was done do they need someone else to come in for him do you think at this point <sighs> As this, as sort of we said, if someone comes in, I imagine they'll instantly be infected by it as well. Like I can't see it making a particular difference. I mean, Ospina has been all right actually the last few weeks. I think he's kept three clean sheets in his last eight games for Arsenal, including, uh, but that was three and seven before the cup final. So yeah, three and eight. Um, maybe he's worth a shot. But I don't feel like Czech's necessarily the entire problem here. This this runs far deeper than Czech, and, and Czech's a serial winner. This is another guy. A, who, long, a long time ago now, though. But he, I mean. He's a goalkeeper. They're not like he's not like he needs to be a spring chicken still. And this, he's a serial winner. And I'm sure if someone like, and it's a very hypothetical, and I'm sure it wouldn't happen. But you look at Diego Simeone, who turned a team of Atletico Madrid players who were pretty much unheard of into La Liga winners and two times Champions League finalists. 
he came in, I'm sure Czech would suddenly improve quite quickly. <laughs> I know I know there is certainly an element for the players to be blamed and Czech has not played anywhere near his level. But the fact that it's so widespread that they're so performing they're performing so far below their level, it, it suggests that it's, it's, it's from top down. Does yeah. the whole defence just need ripping up, do you think? But that's the thing. No, Mustafi is a good player, technically. And Bellerin's been a talented player. Barcelona have looked at him in the past and, you know, Koscielny's been a good player for years, but for some reason at the moment, all of them are playing below their level they should be playing at. And it's clearly that there's something in the club wrong, whether it's training, whether it's Wenger, whether it's the attitude, whether it's the tactical approach, if there is one. Gunnosaurus. Gunnosaur- even Gunnosaurus, yeah, he's playing below his best at the moment as well. <laughs> it's just sort of a, a, a collective drop. And I can, I don't think these players are bad players. I think you see people say, right, we need to get a whole new centre forward, we need to get a new left back, a new right midfielder. But it, it, it's bigger than that. It's, it's the, you need to change the approach and the mindset. Should we listen? We won't listen to it, but should we listen to me say what Arsene Wenger said? It's a revolutionary mm. idea in the world of podcasting. This is what he said after the game. When you struggle for confidence, it's difficult when you have just the trousers on. It's easy to take the trousers off as well. When you are naked completely, you have to find a shirt and try to put it on again to get dressed normally again. As a player, hearing that, you've got to be wondering about Arsene Wenger, right? Those don't sound like the words of a manager who's got a bright future. No, he's really come out with some odd stuff in the last few weeks. I don't know whether it's deflection tactics. I don't know whether it's just the difficulty of answering quite pressing questions. I, and I've never sat in his seat being asked those kind of questions, so I wouldn't know. But, I mean, I was there last week when he said, I've turned down the whole world to stay at Arsenal and respect my contract. So why would you question my commitment? And this, no, Arsenal, we're not questioning your commitment here. We're questioning whether you, you, know, you deserve to still be here, not whether you want to be here still. And I was there Thursday night. He's speaking about um, the reality of Arsenal being worse than they were this time last season and worse last season than the worst season before. He said, I can live with that reality. Well, well, Arsene, tell that to the thousands of fans who stayed away from the Emirates. Admittedly, there was some snow, but all the City fans got there. I mean, tell that to the thousands of fans who are turning their backs on this side, who clearly can't live with the reality of what's going on right now. And it just feels like, I mean, that, that trouser thing, I think is just completely nonsensical, obviously, but it just feels like he's out of touch to me, which is a shame because I think as Jamie Carragher said, in, the, in, the, in our pages, he deserves better than this and he deserves a proper send-off. But the way it's going, it's just becoming a laughing stock. A word for Brighton. Strikes me that Chris Hewton is quite quietly doing a, a really remarkable job there. They've had little patches this season where it's felt like they're going to fall away. And, and this can only be good management that he's righted the ship uh, after those uh, more difficult periods. I think I think Hewton's got a shout for being... Sort of runner-up in manager of the year, really. I mean, obviously Pep behind Sean Dyche. Behind Sean, yeah. Obviously, uh, obviously Pep's going to sweep away with that. But, um, but considering Brighton's resources, uh, considering their squad, what they're doing is really impressive. Well, what they had lacked until today, I think today was the, the big step forward. Was was a the significant major win over a big side. They're not beating anyone who's any good really all season. They just got good draws and respectable victories over the likes of Watford at home and West Ham at home. But to go and beat Arsenal is, is, is a sort of statement, really. Um, and I think they, I mean, they've been helped massively by the form of Glenn Murray, who scored six goals this year, and he was pretty quiet before turn of the year. So that helps. But yeah, what, what Hewton's done there, I think uh, needs a bit more credit. Particularly, I'm sure he'll get it now after being Arsenal. Quite Moving on to Manchester City 1, Chelsea Football Club nil. I remember looking at the fixtures at the beginning of the season and thinking, oh, this is this is the hard spell for City because they have Arsenal uh, and Chelsea so close to each other, Man U not too far away. 
it's obviously not panned out that way at all. This match was like played at a training match pace for most of it. Is this what we're going to see with the rest of the season when teams come up against City? Because there's no real advantage at going for it against them, is there? Well, I do agree with you. But in the first half, Chelsea restricted City to quite a few chances. There wasn't much going on. And I kind of thought, I mean, listening to the commentary and, and sort of on Twitter and stuff, everyone was quite sort of disappointed with what they're doing. But bear in mind they're fifth and... They're not having the, the most consistent of seasons. And they were they were holding City back a bit and they were doing quite well on that. What was disappointing was when they went a goal down straight after half time. They didn't seem to change anything until about two minutes ago, by which point it was far too late. And it was also a little bit ironic to hear uh, Conte discuss the club's lack of ambition last week at Cobham and then uh, to play so without ambition on Sunday was a bit jarring. Um, for, for me, the thing with Chelsea, I don't understand this Hazard down the down the centre thing it, it sort of feels like you're weakening your strength to strengthen your weakness if that makes sense you, you, you've got your best player here is Hazard but you're making him a 6 out of 10 player rather than a 9 out of 10 player for the sake of the rest of the team but I'm not quite sure how much benefit they're getting from that I'm not quite sure it's actually worked this season when they've done that um, when you've got Morata and Giroud on the bench it seems an odd decision for me and it didn't pay off at all City now four wins away from the title if the teams around them can keep up uh, with, with can match their results effectively. That would mean they'd win it at Spurs at Wembley. Is that when you see them raising the trophy? Uh, yeah, because they've got um, United, then Spurs in a week, haven't they? Those are their last two actual tests, really. I mean, there's no there's no doubt they're going to win the league. Is there? It's just a matter of a matter of when. That that would be, I think, a good place to win it for them. I can imagine that being the kind of fixture that Pep's got his eye on as a, a big Wembley moment. Uh, he really celebrated uh, with a lot of gusto at the end of uh, Sunday's game, which slightly surprised me. Mm, I, I, again, I think it's because Chelsea was probably on his fixture list for the last few weeks as this one could be quite tricky uh, to get through that is, I think, another major step forward, really, particularly having beaten Arsenal on Thursday night. So to play two games in three days, four days against City and uh, against Arsenal and Chelsea and to come out with six points is uh, enough to fist pump for, I think. <laughs> Liverpool 2 Newcastle nil in the late game on Saturday Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain making the goal uh, which got Liverpool ahead uh, he said afterwards I absolutely love this uh, when asked uh, how, how he's doing at, at Liverpool he said I'm in an alright moment which is a wonderful <laughs> new spin on the genre of uh, talking about moments in football um, but how has, how has his game changed since he moved to Liverpool? Um, well he seems to be I mean, everything we always knew about Oxlade-Chamberlain was he was energetic, he was quite quick, and he was sort of physically a good player. Um, he seems to have added some discipline to that and some actual uh, technical passing and sort of creativity as well. I mean, he got a great assist the previous week as well, um, and he's sort of growing into his own as centre midfielder. Like, he always said he would, but never got a chance to under the aforementioned Wenger, um, which, again, with each passing week, looks like an error on Wenger's part. Oxford Chamberlain, when he plays on the wing, he seems to me quite one-dimensional in that he runs down the wing, he crosses it in. He didn't really seem to do that much else. Whereas in central midfielder, as a central midfielder, he can burst past players, he can open the game up, he can he can pass, he can shoot. He's sort of got it all really. Uh, particularly in the clock system where he can play on the sort of the side of a three and use his legs to stretch teams and uh, and cover a lot of space, which I think suits him quite nicely and, and the whole sort of high octane heavy metal football club seems to really tick Oxide chamberlains boxes. Are they getting better, Liverpool, at being a little bit less high-octane, at knowing how to wait and uh, and 
pick their moment to unpick tricky defences because Newcastle were quite obstinate if they'd held out till half time you, mm. you would have backed them to get something out of the game potentially I wonder and I've been thinking this and I've been wondering whether it's worth saying or whether I'm just going to get attacked for it but I wonder how much they've improved since Coutinho's left um, it seems oh, the rage is building I'm going <laughs> to lunge for you over the desk Chris so. Brascom is about to call me at any moment now um, I feel like without Coutinho they've gone a little bit more streamlined if that makes sense it feels like Mane's definitely come onto his own since Coutinho's left funnily enough on Mane he's now got more goals this season than he managed last year when this is supposedly a poor season on his part or a worse season um, so that puts that in perspective um, and it, it just seems like, like the goal Mane scored against Newcastle it was so direct in terms of he just ran straight at Newcastle and Firmino played the pass and Firmino's been brilliant for weeks and he's been I think the key to this more than anything but uh but yeah, I wonder whether Coutinho is slightly more uh, thoughtful, more ponderous. You know, he slowed the game down a bit more, took a few more long-range shots, whereas it seems now it's more uh, thrash metal. Are you familiar with the concept of Ewing theory? Uh, no, I would love to hear about it, though. Well, Patrick Ewing was the best player for the New York Knicks for most of the 90s. He was the kind of vaunted draft prospect who came through and was going to save everything. Uh, but the New York Knicks, weirdly, always looked slightly better when he wasn't in the team. Have we got a bit of Ewing theory going on at this point, do you think? <laughs> uh, <laughs> potentially. I just feel like with Coutinho, he had great moments in matches where he'd beat three players and play a 40-yard pass brilliantly, or curl on top corner. But it feels a bit more seamless now in terms of the way they're moving forward. Um, and all this, I think, should come back to as well. Carriers do really well in goal solidity and Van Dijk who seems to be growing into the role by the game so that all helps too as well as my Coutinho theory which may or may not be true and may or may not get me some social media abuse late well thanks for getting us back on track after the detour to the total 90s basketball podcast so, <laughs> um, another team who just don't seem to find themselves in these uncomfortable situations anymore are Spurs they won 2-0 at home to Huddersfield on Saturday they're just winning when you expect them to win now aren't they Spurs mm. and that, that strikes me that's sort of half the battle when you're in their position it's living up to the pressure of expectations and then just maintaining your consistency yeah, they're unbeaten in 11 games now, winning the last eight. So they're on really great form. And 17 in all competitions, I believe. Is it? Bloody hell. Well. The thing is with Spurs, that the last two seasons, they've been fantastic at this time of the year. It seems to be this precise point as the spring hits when players like Deli Ali find their form and they start winning. Uh, I was actually had a chat with Eric Dyer a few weeks ago and asked him, why? Why is this? And in he didn't really have an answer. It was just disappointing. But he did say that um, the one thing he thought about it was, why can't we start this way? Why does it take so long? Which maybe is an interesting insight into their mentality. It's not thinking how great we are. It's thinking how to make next year better, which I think fits in nicely with Pochettino theory. But yeah, Son scores two goals again. I wonder, I wonder if he'll start against Juventus in the week because he didn't play in the first leg. Um, they played Lamella instead, which I was quite surprised by considering... Sonny's form and how uh, how loved he is by everyone involved with Tottenham um, and those who aren't involved with Tottenham I think he's my favourite he's my favourite player of the season it doesn't really mean anything it's just uh, the fellow I take the uh, biggest liking to do you think that's the kind of key game for Spurs uh, f- to get over this period of the season to show that they're going to kind of be they're going to stick around this year is, is the Juve game uh, and how do you see that panning out it's really hard to call isn't it it's really I mean Juve are a top side but I think the way that they controlled that game in in Turin with Dembele in particular just absolutely running the show I think that will give them enough confidence it's not like they nicked two goals on the break they actually were the better side for a, a long part of that game Do you think that will shock Juve? Do you think that will be playing on their mind that they were expected to be the dominant side and Spurs came to their place and mm. just absolutely had the run of it really? I think that 
probably shocked quite a lot of teams in Europe the way they did that. I mean, Spurs aren't even the best team in England, not not by a long shot this year, but they've gone out to the six times Italy, Italian champions and they have just controlled the game, which I found really impressive. I think that was probably the biggest testament this season to what Pochettino's done there. Big win for Swansea City on Saturday, 4-1 against West Ham United. Uh, what's Carlos Carvajal done to improve uh, the team who in, in the league looked the most desperate of any of the Premier League teams mm. not so long ago? Well, he's at, he was asked his question on, on Match of the Day and he, his answer pretty much encompassed everything about football management. <laughs> so he seems to have turned around every single element of the club, uh, which is probably was needed considering where they were when he arrived. Do you think taking chances on competent managers from the championship is going to become the next big Premier League recruitment fad given how well Carverhouse done? Potentially. I think it, the, the bigger factor in that decision might not be how well Carverhouse done but how badly people like Moyes and Allardyce are doing. The ones who are supposed to be the stable hands and the sort of the uh, reliable figures to, to chuck in and sort out any problems. Whereas you look at West Ham who are heading down fast. I don't mean down relegation necessarily but on a downward spiral fast and Everton where Allardyce has really, really struggled to get anything going at all. I mean, Everton haven't, got, haven't had a clean sheet for nine games this weekend. They're conceding from set pieces. I mean, it's the opposite of what Allardyce would bring into you. Um, so I would say that's probably more likely to deter managers. And the applies to Pardew, of course. Um, that, would, that would, I think, make owners look down the ranks more than towards the usual faces. Uh, although, obviously, Carvajal's done very well. Let's get into Alan Pardew. Sam, you were at uh, Watford on Saturday where they beat West Brom 1-0. Pardew now looking really resigned. Uh, slightly unfortunate in that game. It was just a sort of mix-up in the middle and, and Deeney running through to score the only goal of it. But you would think this is it now for Pardew. Surely there's not much point in him staying on. You would think that, but uh, the understanding is that he's going to be given at least another week. Uh, they're playing Leicester next weekend. Um, in fairness to Pardew, Obviously, he's done a terrible job there. I mean, there's no skirting around that issue. There's one win in 15 Premier League games. It's just completely unacceptable. But in fairness to Pardew, they were better against Watford. They were genuinely better. They were the much better side. They created plenty of chances. But Salomon Rondon missed them all, really, uh, which was the main problem. And then one defensive mix-up in midfield and Troy Deeney scores with 10 minutes to go. And that was that. And it felt at the time like that was probably going to be it for Pardew. But I think... There's two factors here. One, that they play better, and there's some encouragement from that. And two, I'm not sure West Brom have got anyone else to appoint. Uh, who else could there be? Where are they going to find them? And Ian who Holloway. would take that? You know? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't speak ill of that, man. Don't speak ill of the Holloway. But who would want that job, really? I mean, that, unless you're hiring a manager for the championship, which actually people said that Carver Howell might be in the case for. Um, I mean, I was thinking maybe Harry Redknapp would come in and do it for some big bucks, but I, I, I just don't know. It must be difficult. Surely not. Surely we couldn't see that happen again. Uh, Burnley 2, Everton 1 in the early kickoff on Saturday. First time Sean Dyche's team have come from behind to win a Premier League game. After Arsenal's defeat, do you think there's any chance Burnley could snatch that sixth spot? Oof. It's not, it's not a terrible run-in. West Ham, West Brom, Watford, Leicester, Stoke, Brighton, Arsenal, Bournemouth. And they're five points off Arsenal now in sixth. Um, I think that's still unlikely. I mean, Arsenal aren't going to lose every game for the rest of the season. Particularly, I think, actually, if, if Arsenal, say, Wenger's going, they'll probably win over this every, <laughs> their last few games and then he'll do a U-turn on the last day of the season. Burnley have had a great season, there's no arguing with that. But I think it's just been, what's the word? It's fizzled out a bit, hasn't it? I mean, I know that sounds harsh considering they're still seventh, but... Uh, the way they started and the way they've gone since then um, has been you know, 
less spectacular. But that's 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 to be expected for, for the players they have and the money they have. Two draws to round off your Premier League weekend. Southampton nil, Stoke nil and Leicester won, Bournemouth won. Assuming Mahrez does go uh, this summer from Leicester, finally, they're in real trouble without him, aren't they? Because an incredibly crucial goal at the end with that lovely free kick and a terrible uh, Bournemouth wall. Um, but we've seen the dangers before, Coutinho aside, of, of losing your match winner for teams like Leicester. Mm, yeah, interesting. I think Claude Puel's a good enough manager to keep them to keep them safe going forward I don't think he's enough to push them up particularly high I think 8th best team in the land sounds about right for Leicester with or without Mahrez probably he's um, such a talisman though isn't he and it, uh, what would it do just to their psyche do you think to lose that guy you look to for that moment of magic that gets you a draw at home to Bournemouth yeah no it would obviously have a big impact particularly on just like the feeling around the club and the fact that they know we've got this guy we can go to um, but if if they get 80 million for him I'm sure they can spend it quite well, um, you look at they brought Diabate in in the Jan- in January. He hasn't done a huge amount, but he cost about one point two five million. He looks like a pretty tidy player, so I'm not sure it would be the end of the world for Leicester at all. Uh, not by any means. Uh, I would be more concerned if they lost Vardy. He seems more crucial to their sort of style and their sort of essence than than Mares. Finally, Southampton are they in your three to go down? Give me a three to go down. Huddersfield, I'm afraid. I know they're fifteenth, but Huddersfield are just. I just don't see it with them. And I don't see much sort of intensity when they go and play teams like Spurs. I mean, admittedly, against Spurs is going to be hard, but they just sort of roll over. They did that against Liverpool as well. They've done that quite against Arsenal too. They've done that against quite a few teams. And Spurs, obviously on good form, but they could have had a, had a go. I mean, Spurs will have one mind on Juventus and that's the kind of victory that Brighton have just got, which probably secures Brighton's safety in, terms, in the long run. Uh, so I think Huddersfield will probably be the one. I think West Brom are almost certainly to be bottom and then for me it's between Southampton and potentially West Ham. West Ham fans join the Liverpool fans and give Sam some thoughts on Twitter. The Telegraph Sports News correspondent Ben Rumsby has been in Switzerland's trendy Zurich over the weekend for IFAB, that's the International Football Association Board where VAR was cleared for use in the World Cup. Ben, given the struggles we've seen with the system so far in this country, was this decision in any way surprising? It wasn't a surprise because we pretty much knew that this was the decision they were going to take before they took it. You could argue it's um, maybe a bit early for them to be taking this decision. IFAB is actually uh, traditionally been quite a conservative body. Um, but since Gianni Infantino became president of FIFA, that conservatism has given way to um, a slightly more cavalier attitude to these things. And he's been um, desperate to get video technology into the World Cup. Um, It's probably the number one priority of his presidency, and it looks like he's about to succeed in doing so. Why is he pushing so hard for it? It's so different to Sepp Blatter, of course, who who was very against any kind of video tech. And Sepp Blatter came out before this decision and and said, please don't bring this in for the World Cup. I think um, he wants to make his mark in the game. I mean, this was on Saturday a historic decision for football, probably the biggest change to the rules of the game at the top level that we've ever seen. And I think Infantino believes that he will be remembered 
in posterity as the man who made football a fairer sport. He was very keen to use the word fairer more than once on Saturday. That, that sounds like you're describing him as a slightly arrogant person. Then <laughs> it's, it's slightly worrying, isn't it, that you can be making these big changes to the sport just out of a kind of personal desire to change things? Well, it's not just him, in fairness. The Football Association have been pushing for this for a long time. Um, the Irish FA obviously had that horrendous uh, decision in the World Cup playoffs, and that was their sort of road to Damascus moment where they were completely converted to VAR. And FIFA can't push these things through on their own. They do need the support of the British associations, and, and that's what they got on Saturday. And it has to go through the FIFA Council, right, before it's actually used in the World Cup. Is there any prospect of them delivering a different verdict to IFAB? No. (laughs) But Ben, was there any mention of the emotional impact of this? Uh, I'm thinking of the last two World Cup finals have both been settled by late winners in extra time. Was there any discussion of the fact that this might in the 2018 World Cup result in a referee saying, hang on a minute, lads, don't don't celebrate too hard. We've got to check this on the tape first. Uh, yes, that, that was one of the key questions that was put to them. Um, and they replied with a barrage of data and statistics. This really is the sort of battle of sort of heart versus head, it, it would appear. And, uh, you know, they were very keen to point out that, you know, the number of mistakes under VAR go down from one every three matches to one every 19 Another sort of lots of numbers being being thrown out there. I think they're less concerned about um, the, the emotional impact that it would have than um, the sort of perhaps financial impact that it could have on on teams going forward. And what about the the element of referees who don't really know how it works and haven't done it that much themselves? Any sort of experience on their part? Because there are obviously referees from across the world who will turn up in Russia having never used it before. I'm sure there's some training involved, but how intensive will that be? And how effective do you think that will be? Well, we're being assured that no referee who takes charge of a match at the World Cup will have done so without having taken charge of at least one VAR game previously. Now, those VAR games are likely to be slightly less um, serious than a World Cup match. So, And we've seen in England that even if you've taken charge of a, you know, a couple of VAR games, it's still a system that, that takes several matches to get used to, both for uh, the referee on the field and the VAR in the studio. So, you know, I'm anticipating a pretty chaotic um, World Cup in that respect. Um, It's not going to be dull. um, And with four matches a day, um, you know, it's very easy to see that... um, you know, there'll be a, a lot of criticism of VAR when it when it finally gets used. It sounds like they're going to be putting decisions up on the big screen, Ben. They've always been against that uh, previously cause it's, because of crowd concerns. If you show something that's demonstrably wrong on the big screen, it's going to incite anger in a crowd. As we've seen already in this country, the, 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 the images used to make the decisions aren't always that clear-cut. Why is it no longer deemed a risk to have the images up on a big screen? Well, this is my big bugbear, and it's a very European view this about not showing uh, things on the big screen. Actually, you'll find that in VAR experiments in the United States and Australia, they do show big screen replays, probably because culturally in other sports, they're used to seeing big screen replays um, in, in those sports. VAR is meant to determine clear and obvious errors. I think if you put a VAR decision on the big screen that's overturned a clear and obvious error, you are not going to get 
crowd you know incitement or manager incitement or player incitement because everyone will be able to see that was a clear and obvious error if you start putting debatable decisions up on the big screen then of course you might get some angry responses to that and what we've seen with the use of VAR in England is too often VARs are interfering in debatable decisions and not clear and obvious errors and I think if you have it up on the big screen they're probably less likely to interfere in those debatable decisions because they will not want to put something on the big screen that is not clear and obvious. And what about in the domestic game, Ben, if it's used in the World Cup? Are all leagues now obliged to use VAR after the World Cup? No, so it's optional. Um, in fact, lots of the laws of the game are optional. You know, assistant uh, referees are not used at you know, the very, very lowest levels of the game, but they're in the laws of the game. So VAR will be um, available to whoever wants to use it, and crucially, whoever can demonstrate the capacity to use it. You've got to have a minimum standard of sort of technological competence and other competences. So the Premier League, for example, would have that. Now the Premier League are going to vote next month, and at this stage, that vote is looking very much in the balance. There are lots of VAR naysayers who will sit round that table um, when that vote comes to be cast. And are we going to see it in the international friendlies that are coming up? So the FA have already said um, that England's uh, World Cup warm-up matches, Italy at home, is it? I think might might be one of them. Sounds Holland, right um, to me, Ben. Holland's the other one, I think. Um, I, I'm not sure if the Holland away game will be, um, but the, they, they did mention World Cup warm-up games, so, so forgive me if I'm not sure if that's the friendlies this month or the friendlies in the immediate uh, build-up to the tournament, but they, they definitely said two, two of those matches would feature VAR. we found a chink in your armour of news, Ben. <laughs> Nevertheless, thank you very much for coming on. No problem. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Now, it may have escaped your attention, but it's been quite cold in the United Kingdom for much of the past seven days. Snow, ice and temperatures beginning with a minus sign put paid to large swathes of the weekend's fixture list. But what's it actually like playing in extremely cold weather? We're joined now by Curtis Edwards, an Englishman playing his football for Ostersunds in Sweden. Curtis, what's the coldest you've ever been out on a football pitch? Um, Maybe minus 16, 15, I think. Um, last season we had a home match and it was it was snowing at the time as well so it was really really cold and uh, didn't enjoy the match so much to be honest. <laughs> so what are the biggest challenges about playing in extreme cold? It's it's not as bad as it sounds to be honest. Uh, you deal with it quite okay but you have to just keep yourself warm because if you do if your toes do get cold even in the warm up or something then they're not going to warm back up, so it's important that you you, you keep yourself warm and <laughs> try your best not to uh, get cold, to be honest. So what steps do you take to, to stop your toes from freezing up in the warm-up? Uh, we put the boots in the sauna to keep them warm before we put them on. and uh, Yeah, that, that's about as much as you can do. We have uh, heat pads that you can you crack them and they stay warm for like 12 hours. You have them in your gloves and your boots and yeah, that's about it really. What's the best tip you've had from one of your Swedish teammates about dealing with the cold? Um, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, 
what was it? Maybe maybe it's the sauna because I see some guys they they have the warm up in some different boots and then they'll go in before the game and put the boots out of the sauna on and I never quite wondered what they were doing until I asked. So now I do that now. Curtis, does it does it change the way you actually play the game or approach it? I mean, do you take a more sort of high tempo approach, for example, you've got to stay warm? Yeah, you actually you, you tend to run a lot more. Uh, we had a game last week and it was was really really cold and. The lads were running like 13 kilometres and that's a lot more than a regular normal temperature game. You, you do tend to be running about a lot more. How long does it take during a game to forget about it, for it to leave your mind and you're just concentrating on things you would be normally? It's always with you, but obviously when the ball uh, is in the, in the game, you're kind of concentrating on that, but any dead ball situations, corners, free kicks, or yeah, you're always rubbing your hands together uh, you're really really cold <laughs> presumably you don't want to stand in a wall that's the last thing you want to be doing in that kind of weather <laughs> no I wouldn't like to take one in the wall to be honest <laughs> I need to tell the manager to keep me out of that what's harder then Curtis extreme cold or extreme heat for footballers uh, personally I think extreme heat that's probably for the best that you say that given where you're playing yeah I, I, I played, we, had, uh, we went to Dubai one year with Middlesbrough and you know, when it's really warm, it's it's even hard to run about and you get so lackadaisical. And, but with the cold, you, you can kind of get through it a bit better, I think. And are you outside now, Curtis? Yeah. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? You're in Sweden. <laughs> I know, I was a bit loud inside, so I had to come out, you know. I think it's about minus 12 or something. It's all right, it's not too well. Oh, my goodness. Get back inside immediately, <laughs> Curtis. Outstanding dedication to the Total Football Calls, but we can't, we can't hold you up for a moment longer. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. Time for your Hero of the Week and we will recognise the great work of Sunderland who turned an unused room in their stadium into a temporary shelter from the cold weather over the weekend. The club created a warm room with space for people who needed it to sleep and put on a supply of food and hot drinks for people who needed them most in Wearside. Sam, do we underestimate the amount of good work that football clubs do for their communities? Uh, I think the answer is a tentative yes. I think I say tentative because... I think as a rule, and completely understandably, uh, clubs try to publicise what they do with the communities, obviously. But yes, I think it's probably one of the aspects of the game, particularly at the top level, that is probably underappreciated by fans. I mean, just in the last week, West Ham, for example, gave food to more than 100 homeless people after one of their under-23 matches was cancelled in Manchester. And they're also playing a friendly with Dagenham and Redbridge later this month, uh, with all the proceeds going to Dagenham and Redbridge. Um, which is good. A cynic would suggest it's because the owners are under a lot of pressure from fans, but we're not going to be that cynical, are we? We're far more, far more supportive and joyous than that. Absolutely not. It's a warm and cuddly podcast. That's all from this week's warm and cuddly Total Football. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We'll be back with you same time next week inside your portable listening friend in time for your Monday morning commute. If you'd like to make contact with me, please use the website twitter.com. I'm at Tom with an H Gibbs. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us an enthusiastic five-star review on iTunes. Each one powers my smile for an entire week. Our theme tune is by Polvo. You can find their back catalogue at mergerecords.com. Thanks to Abby Patson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist fund managers.